Today on The Black Goat, we talk about our feelings about p-values and a letter about whether you should trust open science advocates' early stuff. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullett, as always. Uh, good to be talking to you guys. Um, uh, we're recording this the day before Thanksgiving, but we we decided we're not going to talk about Thanksgiving because then uh, it'll just seem like old news and it'll be weird. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Thanksgiving so, is more fun in anticipation than well, maybe it's fun in hindsight too, actually. Yeah. Yeah, but like a week after Thanksgiving, people are gonna be like, Why are you talking about side dishes? This is <laughs> They're gonna be like, a... I'm so sick of my leftovers. Oh, I really like uh enjoyed the the thing that you posted, Sanjay, about different side dishes in different parts of um the country. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, I guess now we're, we're gonna talk about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving <laughs> because like I'm for for my friends giving, there's a, a no salad rule. Um, and like the entire, like, what is it? Western half of the country is salad. Yeah. You guys are a bunch yeah, so, of nerds. So if people, people listening didn't see this, this was from on 538 and it was, it was one of those kind of like conversational, not real data. I mean, it was based on real data, but it was like, what is this? It was from a survey of like Thanksgiving side dishes, which is like a hilarious thing to do a survey on anyway. But what in each region of the country, what is the side dish that's most distinct? So not necessarily the most popular, but the one that differentiates that. And so the the entire, yeah, everything west of the Rockies was salad. And I was so ashamed to live west of the Rockies. Seriously. I think the most shocking thing about this story is that Alexa read something on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing you yeah, didn't post Alexa- it on Twitter. I never would have learned. Alexa's uh, not on the same social media as as me and Samin. I feel like we hang out on Facebook and Twitter all day. Alexa, where what social media do you hang out on? Are you are you a Snapchatter? Are you? A, I know you're on Instagram. Yeah, I would say that Instagram is my favorite form of social media. Um, so people like I, there are some people that I follow on Instagram who like get pretty fancy. So they have like stories and I'll like follow their stories and stuff like that. And I also post on Instagram like far more than any other kind of social media. Um, Like I might post on Instagram like twice a week if I'm like going through a really (laughs) like post crazy phase. Um, I might post on Twitter twice a twice a minute. That's uh... (laughs) (laughs) so what what is an Instagram story? I don't I still have not figured this out. Uh, it's just a sequence of pictures or maybe short videos usually. Um, okay. yeah. Does it show up in the regular? So I, I browse Instagram and occasionally post, but does it show up in the regular feed or do you have to go to a different part of the app? I think you have to click on the person. So there are people who, who maintain stories and you have to click on them to like watch their, their most recent stories. So okay. it's like you, it's sort of like following them, um, yeah. Yeah. But you, so you don't do stories yourself, Alexa, but you like follow other people's stories, but you do post stuff, right? Yeah. So I'm, yeah. Well, I keep I, it I'm not real, asking I know. real basic. <laughs> like I just yeah. post a picture and then I put a caption and that's it. You, you, I have to say, Alexa, you're a, um, you're a good curator of your life because your, your pictures are always, I like, I always, there's some people that like, they post a zillion things on Instagram. It's kind of like, okay, yeah, another picture of that thing. But like, there's always kind of something interesting going on in your pictures. So I, I always enjoy when I see an Alexa Instagram thing come up the feed. Cool. That's nice. I like seeing Is this your, your way Instagram of telling because... me you're sick of my dogs, Andre. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say Actually, that. Actually, the reason <laughs> I was late to recording our podcast is because I, w- I w- was walking my dog, and this woman who's a photographer came up to me and said that she took a photograph of me and my dog in the rain the other day, and she, and like she's a photographer for something, and she said like she sent it to what I don't understand the names, but they sounded like familiar. Anyway, she tried to get a picture of me and bear in the rain into some photography thing, but they didn't take it. But that's, so I feel a little bit more justified with all my Instagram dog pictures. Cause a real life photographer also wanted to take a picture of my dog. Yeah, no, I, I'm kidding aside. <laughs> like 
I, I really I enjoy the bear pictures. She's a gorgeous dog. I just don't um, get it. They all look exactly the same. That's <laughs> true. They do. Were you now? Were you flattered or creeped out that this woman was like, "Oh yeah, the other day, without you knowing, I took this picture of you and sent it off to places." Oh, I was flattered. I mean, okay. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I don't think I'm particularly picky about that kind of stuff. I don't worry too much about. Yeah, I worry more about, like, students seeing me. Like, when I'm walking my dog and I'm not, like, completely awake or something like that. Like, <laughs> I worry about that, but, yeah. When you're, when you're not wearing your going out sweats. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, don't, I can't remember if I told this story before, but I feel like this captures, like, Alexa's uh, social media use versus mine, although this is not social media, but did I tell you the story? So Alexa and I share a phone plan and I was trying to figure out what was going on with data usage. But anyway, as part of figuring that out, I saw our own, our respective patterns of speaking on the phone versus texting. And like, so Alexa had sent about 10 times more texts than she had spent minutes speaking on the phone. And for me, it was the reverse. (laughs) And I was like, this is our, like, I don't know if it's like just age. I feel like it's age and personality and other stuff. But like, and then Alexa was like, basically, like all my phone minutes are talking to you. And I was like, basically, all my texts are texting you. Yeah, that, that's hilarious because all my phone minutes are are used to me, and like I text everybody else. So I don't think it's just an age thing. That's I think funny. it's a you thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, I don't text very much. Yeah, no, mm. like I. Uh, Oh, I I Skype with my parents mostly. I I phone when I when I when just I want to talk to them. But like with my kid, you know, we we Skype with parents. Um, but everybody else, like I text. Um, you know, if I communicate with them at all. It's weird because <laughs> I feel like relative to most of my friends, I like talking on the phone way more than the average person. Like. The fact that I talk to anyone on the phone regularly is baffling to my friends. And also, if, like, somebody has to, like, call to order food, they always, like, get me to do it because they, like, don't want to talk to a oh, person Oh, I hate on the phone. that kind of talking on the phone. <laughs> I don't do that kind of talking on the phone, yeah. But I, I think maybe because I live alone and you guys don't. I don't know. No, it's not just that. It's probably my personality, too. But I spend, yeah, I spend a lot of time on the phone. Many evenings, I like to just call people and chat. Mm-hmm. That's, But I don't is... like texting. I don't know why. I mean, it's I don't weird. really dislike it, but yeah, it's it's weird how like everybody still calls the device a phone, but the phone part of it is yeah, like right. the thing that people are using <laughs> the use. least uh-huh. of. Yeah. yeah, except Samin. Yeah, she's 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 our legacy person. Yeah, so I guess unlimited phone minutes. Yeah, Bye. oh, I was just gonna say, I'm probably paying for too many minutes. I should take a look at my uh, my usage because you mm. know I think I I think I like got we got our family plan like years ago when like we still used the phone a lot and we're probably like i don't know like i could probably yeah. al- almost get away with like just making it a a data device and then yeah. skype call people or whatever yeah right yeah um i think uh apple is trying secretly or not so secretly to eliminate all of the people in the world who who use non-iphones or just like non-smartphones so um my friend will hart he was like so he has like a flip phone um and he like refuses Holy to get shit. yeah he refuses to get like a uh a, a smartphone and previously this was fine so i i text him maybe like once every six months um and i texted him the other day and i guess i updated my phone recently and my text was like complete gibberish so he had to like call me and be like hey what did you say in your text because it's like it's like wingdings basically and so i think mm-hmm. the newest update did you use the because I I changes it to like some weird yeah anyway there was some update problem yeah the word I was getting changed to like oh symbols. that's right yeah oh yeah. I saw that too but but this was everything not like just my entire person. text message was unreadable and I didn't even use an think, emoji in it yeah that's we should an... just go back to landlines yeah <laughs> yeah my my son is starting to like I mean he obviously he's too young to have his own phone but. He's he's really in, and he loves Snapchat. So like he's the only person I Snapchat with. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll like borrow my wife's phone and which which is like it's and it's sort of a, he's also getting he's he's eight now and he's like old enough that he can sort of navigate around the phone. And I'm like at some point he's gonna start like snooping. Like he's gonna go through uh, he's gonna go through my wife's text messages and I'm like <laughs> I hope I'll like I, I think most of our text messages like he's actually fortunately like. Like we don't send anything like racy or whatever for the most part, but it's like 
she will like she'll send me the like Facebook memories picture of like when he was a baby and we'll like text back and we're like, oh, he was so cute. And so he'll probably just get grossed out by that and like mm-hmm. put it down. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, but he loves the Snapchat, like the filters and the goofy faces and all that <laughs> stuff. I think the only person I've Snapchatted with is Brent Roberts, and that was through Alexa's Snapchat. <laughs> I take I, all do feel credit a little for lame that Brent, Brent Roberts, Roberts is so much cooler than me. That's like, <laughs> I was hoping I'd have some company among like people older than me who might also only talk on the phone and not use it for other things. But yeah, no. Brent, well, Brent's got two teenage daughters, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's probably the that's the key. You need so, more teenagers in your life. <laughs> yeah. Sanjay, did you just sneeze and cover your mic? I did. I hit mute. I'm yeah, so proud amazing. of myself. That was amazing. And <laughs> it was really weird to see you sneeze without hearing the noise. It was like <laughs> yeah. such a weird face to make without hearing the noise. I was, so, so I, maybe this is, when I was in college, I, I DJed at the radio station. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's literally on the board, there's a button called cough. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just a, it's a button that, it's just a temporary mute while you hold while you're holding it down and and you were just taught like if you have to cough or sneeze while you're on the air you just like press the cough button while you do it and then you let it go and you're back on and so i guess i my Sanjay literally did in. this in the middle of a sentence and you guys probably didn't even notice that's amazing we should have a Speaking contest of technology to see who can guess when Sanjay sneezes uh, yeah. that's uh, our our listeners are so fascinated by this i subject. need that button for like when bear barks so i can like hit the a button bark and then button. she's done barking. <laughs> uh, well should we uh, should we shift gears a little bit and uh, do our letter yeah let's do our letter i like this letter um Well, I like all of our letters, but this one's (laughs) going to be fun. Um, All right. So, Dear the Black Goat, I find myself particularly skeptical, uh, similar to what you've expressed in previous episodes, of research done prior to the start of the replication crisis. I recently noticed that I'm less skeptical of current open science advocates. Actually, I discovered this when reading one of Samin's papers from 2008. Samin has explicitly stated that she has p-hacked and used less than ideal practices in the past, and yet, I think because of her outspoken open science stance, I find myself trusting that work with less skepticism than I might other work from the same time. I wonder if any of you have picked up on similar biases in yourselves or others and how you've responded. Sincerely, trying not to be duped by my own mind. I really want to make a joke about the offensive tone of this letter, but I feel like it's too soon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, so... Samin, you dirty pee hacker. Um, Should people trust your work? No, but they shouldn't trust my work now either. (laughs) Yeah, that's not where I thought you were going with this. Uh. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I, like I would be such a huge hypocrite if I didn't say this, right? So I'm like, I don't. There's not much I can say except you should be skeptical of everything, and just because it was me or somebody you respect or whatever, don't turn that criticism and skepticism off. Um. But in a in a relative sense, so yeah, obviously, yeah. like everyone should be reading everything critically. But in a, in a relative sense, like, yeah, should mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, because you, we have to oh, read. Well, let's not the say lines, you personally, because right? I don't want to put you in a position <laughs> of having to be like I was. I'm trying to think of like what, what did I publish in 2008? Yeah, <laughs> I can't yeah. Go back and look at your CV. So mm-hmm. I mean, we've we've talked before about kind of our journeys with open science, right? And I feel like when you talk to people, there's people have different stories, right? So some people. You know, when like the false positive psychology and all that came out, for some people it was just like an absolute revelation. Like, uh, talking among current day open science advocates, like for some people they were like, holy shit, I had no idea. And then I think there are other people who had some sense of unease and, and, you know, were sort of knew that there were issues, but it was sort of like, finally other people are saying this. And then I think there's a, a small number of people. Who were? I mean, obviously, specific things like pre-registration weren't a thing back then. But there, there are other people who I think were, and yeah. this is something I feel like these people get left out of the conversation sometimes. But there, mm-hmm. there were people who were doing things pretty carefully all along, and yeah. and 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 that's really a continuum. Those three types I just said. Right. But but I feel I do worry sometimes that there's this. I, I tweeted about this a, a while ago, a little sort of mini tweet storm. That there's this kind of rhetoric of everybody was doing it that's a sort of like it's a narrative we tell that that kind of allows people to talk about things without anyone feeling bad 
Um, and, and, may, and that's like socially useful, but it kind of writes out of history people who were sort of, who were aware of at least some mm -hmm. parts of what we're talking about now, who are aware of power mm -hmm. issues, who are aware of, you know, the importance of power, who are aware of like how changing an analysis or model specification could sort of arbitrarily get you over and under a 0.05 threshold. Yeah, but I mean, the other thing is we haven't identified all of the QRPs yet. Like, I think we focused a lot on experimental ones, but like for personality research, for example, I'm, I still don't know how bad what I was doing in 2008 was because I feel like I haven't yet thought through all the ways in which we have flexibility in the kind of studies that I do with, you know, thousands and thousands of variables, but large samples or large-ish. Uh, 2008, probably I didn't have very large samples, but so like, did I cherry pick? Absolutely. Was I concerned about false positives a little bit? Like I definitely had some sense of how unreliable correlations are with, you know, smaller samples and things like that. But I don't think I appropriately calibrated my papers. Um, so I think I, I think I would put myself pretty much in the first camp that you described as like, it was very eye opening for me. I think that I was really, really naive about the things I was doing. And I, I'm still not completely done having my eyes open. So it's hard for me to say like how bad my practices were. Do you think that, um, somebody's open science stance now says something about the kinds of work that they did before 2011? No. They're unrelated? I think any combination... I think, yeah, I, I would guess that there's not much of a correlation because I think in some ways, if you were doing all the things we've now identified as p-hacking, you might be more or less likely to think those are a problem. You might be more likely because you're like, no, yeah, people were definitely doing these things. I know because me and all my collaborators were. So you might be more likely to be like, yeah, QRPs are definitely a problem. Or you might, yeah, I, so I could see it going either way. So I'm not sure if I would predict that there would be a correlation. Well, let's, so let's come at this a slightly different way. Are there, so let's accept that like among current days, open science advocates, there's this big range, right? But are there specific people that you say to yourself, if I look at one of their papers from 2008 or 2005 or 1974 or whatever, that like I would have relatively more or relatively less confidence looking back? I mean, there, there's got to be, right? Of like, course, yeah. Yeah. yeah really? Course. I yeah. disagree. There's got to be. Wait, what do you mean? What's the question? Just the, the, <laughs> is there variability course, in how much you trust people's What's papers? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's specifically on on sort of issues related to replicability. Like, are there people who you would say, "Look, if I if I look back at this person's work from the early two thousands, I would guess that it's probably for that era more than average likelihood of being like solid, replicable." sort of trustworthy, credible conclusions or less I than I don't average. know. Like, I think of them... Just a question about whether the there were better or worse scientists before replicability. <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, whether we can know which ones were the better or worse ones. Like, I look at, you know, not to pick on him, and I think he'd be okay with me saying this, but, like, one of the people I respect the most and I think has the most critical, sharp mind, and I, I make a dispositional attribution. I don't think it's just a function of the replicability crisis. I think of this as a quality this person has and had before the replicability crisis is Brent Roberts. And I've heard him say things about his past work that suggest to me that I shouldn't put him in a special category pre-2011 uh, by his own admission. I'm not interpreting things he said. I'm just directly... Um, and I don't know, I'm not saying all of his past work should be looked at that way, but at least I think he would say some of his studies he doesn't trust anymore or some of his papers. So then I'm like, well, if not Brent Roberts, then who? And I mean, I know that sounds a little bit like idol worshiping. I know he's not perfect or anything like that, but like, it's, I don't know. I can't, I can't think of a specific person. I'm skeptical I'm like, no, I think that Brent Roberts' research from pre-2011 is not better than average. Sure, better than average, I guess. I don't know. I mean, better than average on the dimension of replicability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think like... I guess, yeah. I guess better than average is not a very high standard, so yeah. Right, like I, I imagine even if like... So there's two questions, right? Like one is the the most basic question is like, okay, does somebody's stance now tell you anything about their work before? And like I think that that 
there has to be some correlation. But I think the the more interesting question is, does it mean that you should trust their work before? And probably almost always the answer is not really, or you should maintain a high level of skepticism. I'm just glad I was able to ask a question that Samin and Alexa had like obviously yes and obviously no, no. as like convicted or <laughs> but no one knows which is which because like, that's just apart. good radio i mean come on that's just like you know <laughs> no i don't think it's obviously no or whatever whichever side i took i don't think it's obvious um it's just i'm not like i don't know who i would name like above average yeah okay i can agree that there are some people who i would rank above average pre-2011 and other people not but I think we're talking about a slightly higher standard than that, that like, I think their work would survive today's standards or something yeah. like that. Like, yeah. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the, it's the, the letter was, uh, I find myself trusting that work with less skepticism than I might other work from the same time. So yeah. it is kind of a relative judgment relative right. to the time, not mm-hmm. a, a sort of relative to now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess, uh, um, I mean, I, I do think that there are, Maybe not just because the person's an open science advocate. So maybe it's just more like there are things you can look for in the work itself that might Mm be clues, like the sample sizes and the distribution of p-values and the, you know, um, uh, how much... I mean, I I think the we were barely doing direct replication, but there's a... When we talk about quote-unquote conceptual replication... I and this is this is something I haven't like fully fleshed out, but I, I feel like there's a really bad version of conceptual replication tells you about replicability and that there's a kind of good version of it. Um, I feel like some quote unquote conceptual replications are just somebody like firing a shotgun at a dartboard and picking out the pellets that made it. Um, and some are like, no, people are really trying to find something in different ways. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, so, but that's more about the work. That's not the question. The question was about like, should you trust somebody because of their stance now? Um, and maybe, yeah, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe a little bit, but uh, yeah, I agree. It's hard. I don't know. I think it would be, I would not, I guess, I don't know. I know enough people who are like really, really big advocates of these things now who have very openly admitted that they were just as bad as everyone else before the crisis and I feel the same way so I would I just don't assume anything about before the changes and and even after you know assumptions are risky like just because someone talks the talk I don't know yeah I would look for signs I agree with that like I, I mean even if there were a correlation I don't think that like that's a good basis for um making your decisions about what you're going to trust pre-2011 okay so it sounds like then our, our TLDR answer for our letter writer is no, don't trust yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the work, but don't, uh, yeah. Um, or, or use it as a really weak signal um, and be, be skeptical of even using it at all. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that is, mm-hmm. it's, a really, it's a really interesting question. Because it, right? it does get into like how people ended up sort of, finding their way into open science yeah, right. practices and advocacy. And how that which, translates into yeah. their behavior. Yeah. And also yeah. I think it's like, I think that the um, person who wrote this letter is identifying uh, probably, probably a, something that's pretty hard to overcome. Like I think that even though I would, yeah, I would land on no, I think I would still show the same bias that the person is describing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I probably would do. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. So thanks to the person who wrote us. This was super interesting. Um, And yeah. So if you're listening, folks, uh, and you want to email us a letter, uh, we are letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. And uh, if you have something you want us to talk about on an episode, we'd love to hear from you. And you can also use that just to, to reach us. We, uh, we're still a, a small enough operation that I think we mostly respond to most things we get, although, uh, I don't know, it's kind of, it's weird because, like, the, that email address just, like, forwards to our personal accounts, and then it's kind of like, I don't I, I feel this diffusion of responsibility. I feel like the two of you are much better at, like, actually answering people and saying thanks for emailing us, but anyway. we That's always like literally the only thing I do I for the podcast. I was just going to say, it's literally <laughs> the only things we do. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, good. Okay, so Samin, Samin will get back to you, and if none of us get back to uh, you, it's Samin's fault, not mine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but we, no, we really appreciate. It is really interesting to hear, like, just what's on people's minds with these letters, and also kind of when people have, you know, sort of responses and thoughts to to what we're talking about. It's always fun seeing like tweets about episodes and that kind of thing. And so, thank you to everybody who sends us letters thanks to everybody who interacts on facebook and twitter um and 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 thanks to people who just uh, listen um and yeah if you're listening uh um always mention this that if you rate us on itunes that's a way that people find out about this which is kind of cool um if you want other people to to know about us uh and you can find us on the web www.theblackgoatpodcast.com which is where some people apparently actually listen to us on the website which is weird to me because i listen on my phone but uh that's a thing people do you can listen to us if you're at your desktop computer um and we're on twitter at blackgoatpod and we're on facebook at facebook.com/blackgoatpod cool so our 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 main topic today, we wanted to talk about p-values, and we wanted to talk about our our feelings about p-values uh, <laughs> and and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, we'll get to this. Samin was a one of many co-authors on a recent paper in Nature. Was it Nature Human? Where where was which of the Nature, nature Human Behavior? Yeah. Nature Human Behavior. Yeah, uh, 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 called. Uh, redefining significance, and we'll we'll get to that um, because there's been some interesting discussion conversation about that. Kind of as a, a starting point, um, I, I this is maybe this is a weird question, but I'm interested in hearing your guys' history with p values, and and in particular, like Alexa, when you were in grad school, what did you like? What did how were you taught to use and think about p values? both in the classroom and kind of in practice in your lab? And were those the same or different? And did you even really think about that them that much? Or like, yeah, what what was your relationship to p-values back I think, in the day? like, if you think about how p-values are treated in, like, you know, PhD comics and stuff like that, like, that's how I thought about p-values, basically, which is, like, there is a magic number, and you, like, you want to be below that number. Um, so I don't remember, like, I couldn't tell you how I learned about p-values for the first time. Um, or, yeah, I, I don't remember, like, how my understanding of them developed. I don't remember, like, having conversations with my advisor about them. Um, but I just remember having the, you know, the approach to p-values p that it's, like, a standard of evidence and you need to make this cutoff or, you know, your results are no good. Yeah. What about you, Samin? How were... I don't remember at all. I mean, yeah, I, had. <laughs> so I wish I had a better memory, but I remember that my attitude was, yeah, similar to Alexa's. I don't remember if I was taught better than that and I just ignored it or I don't want to blame anyone else for that attitude. But yeah, I think I had a pretty oversimplified view. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, uh, I feel like I got very different uh, messages about them in class versus in the lab. So in, in, in my stats classes, like I didn't, I don't think I understood on a really deep level what they were exactly. Like we kind of got, you know, you got told the thing, but you, it was sort of like, you, you sort of like learned to regurgitate the words about what a p-value means. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was a very long time before, like people would say things like, a p-value isn't evidence that the hypothesis is true. And I would kind of get that, but mm -hmm. it was a long time later before sort of once I started to like get exposed to things like positive predictive value and base rates and all those kind of things, it kind of, I started to understand it a different way. But at the time it was, yeah, the, the stats classes were kind of, um, you know, this is a statistical decision rule. Um, it's got to be below this thing. But also like my stats classes, I remember were, pretty good mostly about trying to talk about like multiple comparisons and that your planned contrast should actually be planned and not a thing you say you planned all along or whatever and then yeah. in practice in the lab um i was taught in i think mostly good ways not to take p-values too seriously mm -hmm. um so i can remember it's very like distinct memory early on of 
sitting down with my advisor to look over, like, uh, you know, I had a big correlation table from a study I had run. We're going to kind of, it was an exploratory thing. We're going to look at it together. And I remember, like, I was pointing at all the ones with asterisks next to them and saying, well, these these are the, you know, these are the the significant correlations. And he, you know, he looks at me, he starts going, Sanjay, Sanjay, you know. And, and I was thinking, like, oh, it's like a multiple comparisons thing that we learned about in class. He's going to tell me I shouldn't just look at the... He's like, don't look at the p-values at all. In fact, you know, he's like, uh, there's a way in SPSS to, like, remove all the p-values and asterisks from your table so you can't even see them. Like, next time you bring me output to talk about, do that. And his, he was like, look at the effect sizes, look at the correlations, and, and that's how you pick out which ones, you know, you're going to interpret or whatever. Um, and he would like, anytime I would talk about p-values, he, uh, um, he would push me to think about effect sizes instead. Um, but at the same time, it was, so, so in that sense, like, don't take them too seriously, it was like, you know, have a decent sample size and then just look at if it's like 20 or 30 or whatever. Um, the 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 correlation, but you, you you also knew that you had to have a significant result to get published, and so like that was still part of the process of like you know at that first stage it was like focus on the effects, but eventually you had to have significant and results. Did that translate to when you read a paper? Did you not take the p value too seriously? Especially, I'm curious when you read an experimental paper. Like I think in yeah. in personality psych, because people report all big five or all six or whatever. We're used to seeing some significant and some not significant. I think we get a little bit more used to the idea that that cutoff is somewhat arbitrary. Two correlations could be on either side of that cutoff, but very similar to each other. But I feel like I still, like when I went to read experimental stuff where there was one key p-value, I, I think I still use that like dichotomous thinking quite a bit. Yeah, I think so... Um... I think because there were never non-significant p-values, it like it w almost wasn't mm -hmm. a useful signal. It's like mm -hmm. the paper is published because the the right. thing that the title is about was significant. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, um, I I did you know so so th this was I think the APA statistical or not the the sort of the recommendation that you should always report effect sizes came out right early in grad school like in the mid to late 90s the APA task force so people kind of started reporting effect sizes in experimental papers too but still often didn't and older papers wouldn't have them and I was sort of um because of the sort of the person situation debate and some of David Funder's critiques of saying like, look, social psychology experiments have the same effect sizes as personality experiments that I kind of had, I wouldn't necessarily like calculate an effect size if it wasn't in there, but I kind of had in my head this idea that like, oh, these might not be humongous effects or whatever. Um, Which is almost the opposite problem, right? Like now I read it and I'm like, Oh, it's you see that this is a humongous effect. <laughs> That's, mm -hmm. I, I believed you when you said it was like there was some difference, but now you're trying yeah. to convince me there's a gigantic difference, and that's harder to convince me of. Yeah. So, yeah, the way I've, I read papers has changed really, really drastically. And so, interestingly, I um, yesterday I taught, so I teach undergrad research methods, and yesterday's lecture was on null hypothesis significance testing and p-values, so I just gave an 80-minute lecture on p-values, and... I think the way I teach that has changed really, really drastically, too. So, you know, we talk, the whole class is about four kinds of validity, construct validity, internal validity, external validity, and the last one is statistical validity. And I think in the past, and what most textbooks and classes like this teach is that statistical validity just means you can only claim, you can only reject the null and claim that something is significant if P is less than 0.05, and if it's not, you have to fail to reject the null, and that, that's a statistically valid conclusion. And instead, I'm trying to give a lecture about, like, no, but, like, what are ways people misinterpret the p-value? And what are times when you get p less than 0.05, but actually your statistical validity is still questionable? And, you know, trying to ex go into that nuance, which, yeah, I don't know. I mean, so it's interesting. I, I do clicker questions throughout the lecture. And I had them most of the way. And then after, like, about two-thirds into the lecture, they just started getting every clicker question wrong. And I was like, okay, there's something I did. So I was going to post my slides and maybe even the MP3 of the lecture together with the slides. But now I'm like, nope, I, I got something wrong, <laughs> like, two-thirds of the way through the lecture. Yeah. <laughs> maybe next year after I tweak my slides a little bit. I actually, so I teach two sections back-to-back. -back, so I skipped some stuff, the second section, that I think confused them in the first. And it went a little better. But it's really interesting how hard it is. It's like one thing I was trying. I was like, if you come out of this class with one understanding, 
when understanding one thing beyond the like textbook stuff, what I really wanted them to understand was that alpha is the probability of making a type one error when the null is, is true, but it's not the probability that if you get a significant result, it's a false positive. Mm-hmm. So trying to teach them the difference between that. And I was like, what we really want to know is that second thing. That's what we really want to know. Like we want to know is the null true or not? What are the chances that a significant effect is a false positive? But just because we really want to know that doesn't mean we can know it and doesn't mean that alpha is that is the answer to that question. So I don't know if I managed to get that point across, but I, that was like what I was really, really trying to hammer home. Yeah, well, that, that was the thing that I was saying that I... I was told that and memorized it, but right. didn't really understand it for a long time. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. you know, I want to, like, when I was saying, like, I was taught not to take p-values too seriously, the, the downside, like, the, you know, I was taught, like, when you're actually in the thick of analysis, like, you know, you, you don't look at them too seriously. But then I think the downside of that attitude is this isn't necessarily something I was explicitly told, but it kind of becomes, like, you, you it's very easy to slip into, inside of your own head, into mm-hmm. justifying because you're not taking because you think like p values shouldn't be taken too seriously that oh if like something nudges something from an 06 to an 04 it's not that big a deal because yeah. i shouldn't be taking p values too seriously right. um so so it's like it's not like you're you're convincing yourself not to take your really really significant ones too seriously yeah. in a disconfirmatory way you're you're yeah, you, you end up sort of like talking yourself into like like this shit doesn't matter anyway this is just some <laughs> stupid threshold so my like you know Point oh eight one tailed marginal like uh, I shouldn't you know I should take that as evidence because it's this is just a dumb game we all play right you know and, and and that comes from not really understanding a lot of what we now know which is a common concern I have when people talk about how editors should tolerate more messy results yeah and. I've, you know, there's papers on this and so on. And I get so nervous because I'm like, no, people are going to think that means we need more p-values close to 0.05 on either side of the border. <laughs> and I'm like, I, that's, there's, there's messy and there's messy and they're different things. And I don't know. Yeah, I think the other thing I really, really didn't understand until, and I'm not sure I still don't understand it fully, but the thing that like every time I look at it, I feel like it sinks in a little bit more is what the distribution of p-values looks like when an effect is mm. real and you ha- especially mm-hmm. when you have decent power but even without a lot of power you just it's really really unlikely to get p-values close to 0.05 very often and i just think that so much of my skepticism about papers and studies when other people aren't skeptical comes down to that and i don't know how to talk about that because it's it's like a mathematical thing i remember having a very long well not very long but probably like 15 minutes back and forth with a like very famous social psychologist who kept insisting that if you do your power analysis right you can get a p-value just below 0.05 systematically like if you're really really good you know the effect size and you plan your sample size exactly right and by the end it was like three or four of us like just repeating over and over again that's just mathematically not true there's no sample size where you will reliably get a p-value just below 0.05 like that the the Mm p-curve is never that shape no matter what if there's a true effect Mm -hmm. and like how else what else can you say like how can you keep arguing it's not a matter of gut feeling and our gut we do have gut feelings about it and they're wrong Mm -hmm. they're just mine used to be too and i still have to get over that i um while we're trading stories about what we took a long time to understand um, I always found it really counterintuitive that your interpretation of a p-value depended in part on your intentions before you did the study. So, so Sanjay, you were talking about how like you were taught that it's like really important to do these like planned contrasts and really like only do this test if it was something that you planned ahead of time. And for me, that was something that was not intuitive for a long time. Was that like you know a p-value means something different if you intended to do that test from the start versus if you like chose us an effect size based on the P value. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I mean, we were taught that in the classroom. So, so, you know, I had these two different teaching contexts and it, it kind of made sense to me at the time. It just kind of wasn't how people did things in practice. This was like sort of statistical theory and it, you know, it sort of made sense that like, yeah, like if you run enough comparisons, you'll get something significant. Yeah. And so then if you just pick it out after the fact, like that sort of made sense, but it just kind of wasn't how people were mostly doing things. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think the the idea of, to Samin's point of, of like a, 
distribution of p-values, just that idea by itself, was something that had honestly never occurred to me until mm-hmm. the false positive psychology. Well, actually, no, until the P-curve paper. Yeah. And uh, and I remember reading that for the first time, and it talks about, like, under the null, the, the p-values have a uniform distribution. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. And they sort of talked through why. It's like, it's sort of like math, mathematically obvious once you know it, but it was like, oh, I just never thought about like, what's the dis- you know, like, yeah. what's the distribution of p-values. And then I think that paper a little bit raised the idea of uh, um, what a distribution of p-values looks like when the null is not true. But what really drove it home for me was fairly recently, that is, um, I think it was, uh, was it J.P. De Reuter? And I forget who else. There's a, 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 I apologize for forgetting the, the names now, but a, a couple people wrote a Shiny app that you can, we should link it in the show notes, that you Our can go and you can just... I think. I can't remember his real name, but the website is called yeah. Our Psychologist. Yeah, I'll find it and, and we'll put it in the notes. So you can actually just see the distribution. This is where this thing that you're talking about, Samin, comes from. Is like when there's a non-null effect and you have any reasonable amount of power, you're mostly going to get really tiny p-values. And people don't have that intuition because of years of p-hacking. Um, or year, years of, not even p-hacking, but just years of like pouring through a bunch of analyses and you know, like this isn't even necessarily publishing, so it's not p-hacking in that sense, but like pouring through a bunch of analyses and most of the p-values you see that catch your attention are the ones with asterisks next to them. And most of those are right below 0.05 because most of those are false positives, but you don't realize that. And so you've got like, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like how people talk about like implicit bias in the IAT being just this like unconscious association from seeing things paired over and over again over your whole life. Yeah. And... I think a lot of researchers train their intuitions by seeing values just below 0.05 paired with asterisks over the course of their many hours of looking over analysis output. And they think, and so they have these intuitions about the distribution that are just, like you said, I mean, mathematically just completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of the hardest things to debate about because it's just not one of these things. It's a matter of opinion. and, And I don't, I just don't know how to talk about that. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about the the paper because this is very relevant to the re- redefining significance paper. I think so. So, Samin, you were one of seventy some co authors on this paper um, called "Redefining Significance," and just to sort of summarize, and I want to maybe you can talk about kind of how this came about and how you got there. But the 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 argument is to it's an interpretive change it's not a change to publication practices it's it's just to say let's change up and use the word significant when p is less than 0.005 and use suggestive when it's between 05 and 005 um and and you know and there there are some mathematical arguments uh um behind that and some other things uh and so that's kind of the general overview of the sort of what the paper's arguing. So, yes, I mean, how did, like, how did that come about? And, and why, like, was this, did you have to be convinced by, you know, like, did people come to you and say, we're doing this thing, and you're like, well, could talk me into it? Or were you like, yeah, go for it? Or, yeah, how did that um, happen? I didn't have to be convinced, um, especially given, you know, your accurate description, which is, it's not saying that we shouldn't publish things between 0.05 and 0.005. It's just saying we should flag them as less conclusive or less, you know, we should be less sure about it. Um, so th- I got an email from Brian Nozick saying that a group of people were considering putting together this proposal and asked if I wanted to be part of it. And I said yes. And then I was sent an outline and I gave feedback. And then I was sent a draft and I gave feedback to that. And then I was sent the final manuscript and I found a very, very important typo in my name. <laughs> and I made sure that got fixed. <laughs> So don't ever say I didn't contribute anything to that paper. <laughs> um, yeah, I yeah, I mean, I didn't need convincing. I thought it was a yeah. pretty not. I didn't think it was that bold of a claim. Although I was not naive, I knew it would be perceived as a bold claim. But um, yeah, my thinking. I have a few reasons why I'm for it. But one way to think about it that occurred to me, you know, since we've been talking about doing an episode on it, is I've, I've been trying to think about like, okay, what's what's a different way to explain it than what's in the paper? And what's in the paper, I think, is I think there are really clear explanations, but 
you know, some of them written by people who okay, know a actually, lot more before, about stats. Before you go on, can you kind of maybe walk through for people? Because we, we've just been talking about how you're, you're not supposed to use a p-value as evidence that the alternative is true or the null is false. But mm-hmm. this, this paper is kind of integrating p-values with some other sort of background information, right? So can you kind of talk people through, like, what's the rationale for... Uh, um, for making this interpretive change. Sorry, I didn't want to. I didn't want to no, cut you I don't, off, but yeah, I kind of want remember. people to. No, I mean, <laughs> I didn't reread the papers. So I'm not prepared to to go through the arguments in the paper. I can tell you my my thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's kind of a cop out. I should, you know, obviously, I'm an author. I should be able, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't prepare for this. No, no, I'm not asking for like a, the technical explanation because people yeah. can read the paper. Yeah, I'm just talking more like how do you how do you get to this argument? Is kind of what I mean, I'm asking. So one thing is that. Uh, what given what we know about the distribution of p values when there's a real effect it's not a lot to ask to say that you should be able to get below 0.005 or i guess if i had my way i would have made it 0.01 because that's it's pretty loose like i feel like when there's a real effect you'll get below 0.01 pretty easily even if you're powering to 0.05 so even if you do your power calculations with an alpha of 0.05 you should get below 0.01 a lot of the time more than half the time if you have decent power i think or about half the time maybe I can't remember. I should have prepared for this better. <laughs> but so let's say that there's, let's say we're, we live in the world we live in now where many people don't pre-register. There isn't enough transparency. We, ha- we don't really have a good basis for telling what's a false positive and what's a real effect other than, you know, signs like things in the p-value. So we now know from things like p-curve and just math what the distribution of p-values looks like when there's a real effect and what the distribution of p-values looks like when there's p-hacking or cherry-picking or things like that. And so therefore, we know that when you get a p-value close to 0.05, there's actually a, a better chance that it came from a p-hack distribution than from a real distribution. Um, so those those results in that range of like 0.01 to 0.05 just don't have very much signal value. They they suggest something. They tell you there might be something there that's not super likely under the null, but it's also not super likely under the alternative, depending on what your alternative is. So often we're stuck in a position where we're like, well, I don't know which distribution these results came from. You show me two or three p-values of 0.03. Sure, that's pretty unlikely under the null. It's also pretty unlikely under a plausible alternative so we should just be you know we should be we should treat those as inconclusive um and it, it's the other thing is that it actually doesn't require as big of an increase in sample size as you might think to reliably get p-values below 0.01 or 0.05 i think our intuitions about how much bigger our samples would have to be to do that are also a little bit off it's, it's not that much harder because of the distribution of p-values when there's a real effect because they're so right skewed that it's it's not actually that hard to get a low p-value when there's a real effect yeah i think that's yeah that again that that's the a lot of the response i saw to this paper was it, it felt to me like people have this intuition which again is understandable um it's just not mathematically right that they have this in- intuition that like it's just such a high bar to get to point oh oh five um and you know when 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 your hypothesis is correct and and it's it's not and and then uh, some of the other response was i think was interesting you know the people I think some people just misinterpreted this as like you guys are proposing this as a publication threshold, and that was just like that was just directly stated that's not the case in the paper um i think there's a some of the other response was more of a practical argument that like well you guys might not mean it that way but people are gonna if people adopt this they're gonna implement it that way yeah i thought it was interesting that people were scared that people were going to take our proposal really really seriously and maybe even further than we said which like i don't know i'm not actually worried that people are gonna like I don't see the world changing and like accepting this new alpha. I don't know. Maybe I'm underestimating our influence, but like I, when I taught, you know, NHST yesterday, I said the field of psychology uses an alpha of 0.05 and I didn't feel I had to qualify that like, Oh, but it might be changing because guess what? Like, no, (laughs) it's not going to change anytime soon. But in your time as a psych major at UC Davis, it will be 0.05. So yeah, the, 
yeah, I don't know how much authority we really have. But I agree if people did jump on this and immediately start using 0.005 as a new alpha and treated it the same way we've been treating 0.05 as an alpha, that would be bad. Like, we should... The goal is to have less dichotomous thinking, and so incre- introducing another threshold makes three categories instead of just two. So if people just reduced it to two categories again, that that wouldn't be good. I don't know if that would be any worse than having the two categories around 0.05. I mean, that's a harder call. But our proposal is to have three categories, which I think I don't see how that's any how that couldn't be slightly better than two categories. I think the bigger argument against it is that we're not going far enough argument. Like you're reifying cutoffs, you're reifying NHST. Why don't you just abandon it all? And my response to that is I want to know what to do today. Like, I think that's great that other people are working on making a better world next year or in five years. But what do we do today? What, what do I do now when I read a paper? I'm curious what you guys think about the, um, the idea that we should get away from dichotomous thinking or get away from cutoffs. So like, uh, of course I understand why the idea of getting away from cutoffs is a good idea. Um, and I understand the idea that we should think of science as something that's sort of like, you know, our evidence for, um, effects is always fluctuating and we can talk about like stronger or weaker. Um, but for me personally, and I don't think that I'm alone in this, uh, I, I find it really hard to get away from the idea of thinking about a cutoff. Like, I just think that it's, it's maybe like, I want to say like, it's human nature to to (laughs) say like, you know, I want to know like, yes or no, or like strong or not. Or, um, and I remember like, you know, um, when I was in grad school, um, having people explain to me like model fit indices, um, and model fit indices don't have like clear cutoffs and I was just like well just tell me if it's good or not like (laughs) I need to know and and people people sort of do need to know that right like they are not we're not able to take this like nuanced information that we read from every paper and remember the nuance um so Alexa do you do you feel like because there's there's a practical level at which we have to make dichotomous decisions Mm -hmm. right so you have to you know make a dichotomous decision to publish or not you have to make a dichotomous decision to do the follow-up study or not right so for you does it feel like that it's and it sounds like the answer is no like but is it just that practical thing like you want to know uh what what i should do next or do you feel like it's sort of at the level of thinking that you know, you, you, you don't find it sort of cognitively fitting to, to even sort of think in these kind of continuous terms. Yeah. I mean, like maybe, maybe my brain's just not capable of processing that much information, but I feel like what I retain about affects generally speaking, especially things that are not extremely relevant to me. And, and then I can have a more nuanced understanding, but in general, it's like, do I buy it or do I not buy it? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know that is interesting. I, I and I wonder, do you do you feel like that varies? So, like, if it's a paper that's and let's uh, going beyond even just the sort of the significance and p values, but like overall in your thinking about a paper, if it's something that's really close to your area of expertise that you know a lot about, and six months after you remember after you read a paper and you're remembering back, you're in a meeting with a student, you're like, oh, I saw this, you know, there's this paper that's relevant to what we're doing. In those cases, are you just remembering it as like it was a paper I believed or it was a paper I didn't believe, or do you do you feel like your memory comes with some calibration of like, yeah, this was an especially good paper or this was like a suggestive paper, but you know you know like yeah i'm I'm yeah, I would like, say that like uh I would say that the nuance for those kinds of things that are like particularly relevant come more from like features of the design and things like that than they do from mm-hmm. the like thinking about the p value. So I think okay. that probably like probably I do categorize the result as either like I think it's a real effect or I think it's not a real effect. But then it might be like okay, but I didn't love this thing about the way that they did it or you know, it's only this population, I don't know how it generalizes. Like those kinds of things would qualify it more than i think i think i make a pretty dichotomous i think i store the information pretty dichotomously when it comes to just like the buying the effect yeah i think that that, oh god 
one way that is useful for me to think about when I'm trying to ask myself if I believe in effect, it's so easy to say I do or I don't or whatever, but actually buying the effect is a good expression. I try to think about like, would I bet money mm-hmm. on this replicating? Mm-hmm. And so that might sound like a more continuous measure, but I actually agree with you, Alexa, that my thinking is categorical and it might not be only two categories, but yeah. like we could have like, I mean, like with fire safety, danger, threat, there's three categories, yeah, right? Three, Red, orange, three and green. So like, we could probably three. handle three. So yeah. like you could have like, would you bet no money? Would you bet uh, some amount of money that you'd be willing to lose? Or would you bet enough money that it would be painful if you lost? <laughs> like those would be kind of my three levels of yeah. confidence that I would have in a result. Yep. And maybe, maybe we could even handle four. I don't know. I'm sure cognitive whoa, psychologists whoa, whoa, whoa. have some, <laughs> some data on how, you know, what, what kinds of gradation we can handle. Um, but I don't think it's yeah. infinite. I don't think it's like a completely continuous slider. Like imagine that the fire safety, stuff was like today's fire safety threat level is 3.4 and yesterday's was 3.2 and you're like what do i do with that information yeah yeah, yeah. exactly well i think you know i yeah i mean i think that description to me also resonates that like i you know i have this sort of general like bin of like i buy the effect or not but then as i think about it especially with ones that i've read carefully that are close to my area i usually have a more somewhat graded sort of thought process about it. And I guess the question is, we don't, you know, Alexa, you were saying you don't think about that way in terms of the p-values, but you do in terms of like, you don't just think good design, bad design. Mm -hmm. You have sort of like nuanced, subtle thoughts about that. And I guess the question is like, if we lived in a world where we weren't using thresholds, um, how could we have more than two? And if so, how many categories of, and I, I mean, I think I like the idea of like, let's go from two to three and see. You know, <laughs> I, like, I think that that is a good answer to the question of like what we do now. Like two to three seems plausible. Yeah. Two to continuous seems. Uh, I think to go to use your analogy of like, well, when it comes to evaluating the design or other aspects of it, we can make more kind of distinctions that are substantive rather than just good or bad like oh it had a confound or it had a demand characteristic or whatever why can't we do that with stats and i think the answer is it i don't know this is a very naive answer i'm not an evolutionary psychologist or biologist or anything but i don't think our brains are designed to handle probabilities that way i don't think we can look at a distribution of statistics and say oh well that comes from the null or that doesn't or that whatever but we can do that with a design of a study we can look at this is how you said you manipulated it i don't think you really manipulated what you think you manipulated i think we have much better ability to critically think and evaluate that kind of evidence than statistical evidence yep and i don't know that that training can fix that training can make it a little bit better but it won't rewire our brains to be able to handle probabilities and distributions and things like that and make them intuitive. I feel like I can almost hear from a week into the future Bayesians yelling at their phones mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it would be, int- I mean, I, I, you know, and uh, just to like taunt them even further, like, you know, the, um, I forget who, who it was. There's this like famous table. Was it Jeffries or somebody, one of the Bayesian lords of, goodness or whatever (laughs) like as this table of like at this it's strong evidence and at this Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm, like anecdotal which is like a such a weird term but anyway you know and you know i I, like a Bayes factor of eight is strong evidence like that feel that starts to feel a little thresholdy i don't know that i'm we're we're going i'm i am predicting right now i'm gonna get yelled at on twitter by bayesians for saying Mm -hmm. this but it i feel like bayesians never yell on twitter oh no (laughs) even (laughs) i I know that that happens (laughs) (laughs) they also have podcasts which uh i listened to the first episode of alex edson Mm. uh jp duchoider's uh uh the bayes factor which was really interesting Um, i've been meaning to listen to that yeah, but uh, um, so so I don't know. I should listen to their podcast and maybe I'll I'll get the answer. To, yeah. I think but, these issues are orthogonal to Bayesian versus frequentist, yeah, right? No, like, that's yeah. You could right. I mean, you guys are what you proposed was basically a a step towards continuality, and and I think wasn't it Fisher thought we should interpret p values continuously? If I right. remember right, I think it was I like that was right. one of the differences with. I, I, I'm also going to get yelled at for saying that, but I think that's true. <laughs> No, I think that's right. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, you're right. It's not a. It's right. It's not a like. How do you find probability? It's it's more the continuous versus threshold. You could do it in both approaches. 
Although I think maybe this isn't like a logical thing, but it just seems to like be correlated with like the Bayesians seem to be mm-hmm. much more anti-threshold. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I should maybe now I'm starting to be afraid of Bayesians yelling at me. Um, <laughs> but like I should oh, clarify let's, let's that. Let's just keep taunting them. <laughs> <laughs> when when I say that, like I think we're never going to get away from cutoffs. I mean, like when an individual person is evaluating an individual finding. Um, but that's not to say that like we should. Yeah, I mean, this is very obvious, I think, but, like, it's not to say that we should, like, dichotomize every finding and then, like, use those dichotomized findings to aggregate findings, of course. Yeah, we shouldn't throw away information. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and, you know, it can, even if, like, that's inside of someone's head, their thinking, you know, it can, if the information is in there, it can be, it can become part of the conversation. Like, if, if I read a paper with a Bayes factor of six and say, I think that, you know, I walked away thinking this was a paper that supported the hypothesis and, and, you know, you think it didn't. And then we can, we can at least have a conversation about like, how, how should we interpret this number? Um, and it's, it's a, maybe a better conversation than a pure thresholded P was less than 0.05. And we don't even say what the P value was kind of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think yeah. that we should have both, right? So yeah. I think we can have categories, and with we should also give the more specific information. So like going back to the fire danger thing, like they could tell you it's red, and they could also say, and if you want more information, it's red, and it's an eight point two as opposed <laughs> to an eight point eight red or whatever. Um, and I think yeah, we we should definitely not throw away that information. But I think what I see as the purpose of the cutoffs is as a like backstop against too much rationalizing so like mm-hmm. you can tell me that your 0.06 is actually should be treated as if it was significant you can make a case for it but we still have this like hard rule that you know above 0.05 that's going to be a very very hard argument to make because otherwise so much is going to depend on your argumentation skills mm-hmm. and how compellingly you can make the case and so on and that that should be part of it but i think we do need a break on that system and some relatively hard cutoffs and but not absolutely impermeable just like some kind of defaults of like okay that's going to be a hard case to make if you really want to argue that you're gonna you're gonna cross a categorical thing boundary and that that's that's a really i i don't know that i've ever thought about it that way before samine that the if you have a purely continuous thing and you and I can look at it and we can reach different interpretations, um, what the cutoffs do is not a, not from a cognitive perspective, but almost from like a social perspective is they say, well, look, if, if it's, we've, we've agreed collectively as a community of scientists that if it's, if the number is above this threshold, it, it requires extraordinary justification. And so who's the onus on, like if you and mm-hmm, I are disagreeing right. about something mm-hmm. and who's the onus on to, to sort of make the case that we should or shouldn't pay attention to this, the, the cutoffs are a, an easy way of codifying some like collective consensus yeah. about not, not about also, the truth of the matter, but about how the conversation is supposed to proceed. Yeah. And the way I see the alpha of 0.005 proposal is saying, okay, everyone's been saying, like a lot of people who argue that replicability is not that big of a problem. A lot of them say, look, we never really treated like studies that have weak evidence as if they're conclusive. Nobody fell for mm. that trap, blah, blah, blah. And so then we're saying, okay, put your money where your mouth is. If you're willing to say that weak evidence is weak evidence and we're not going to mistake it for strong evidence, don't worry, we're not dumb, then say, fine, let's let's have a default cutoff of where we think strong evidence is. And maybe it shouldn't be exactly 0.005, but if we all agree 0.05 is not strong evidence, then let's draw a line in the sand somewhere where that you have to be below or have to make a really strong case if you're going to argue that you have strong evidence and you're not below that line. And I wonder how this paper would have gone over if instead of using the language that's currently used for 0.05 and moving that same language, statistically significant, to 0.005, and then coming up with a new word for the 0.05, the less extreme proposal would have been to come up with a new phrase for 0.005 and let people keep using statistically significant for 0.05 and try to dilute the meaning of statistically significant to be more like what people say they mm-hmm. interpret it as. Like, oh, yeah, of course, we know it's preliminary, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then let's make that category mean that and let's make a new category that means more like the way we've been treating 
statistically right. significant. But I think that right. wouldn't have so worked. Strong but... significance or some other word yeah, right, that's right, not quite right. de- definitive would be too much, but like yeah, right, some right. right some some other mm-hmm. word that sounds more impressive than significant. Yeah, um, but I think right now significant is so impressive sounding that it's hard to dilute it it's and i don't know i mean that that's a i could definitely be wrong i'm sure people will disagree with me i'm sure a lot of people still think no we don't take statistical significance is that important but you see journalists writing about it all the time you see people yeah i don't know so it's an empirical question how how much trust people really put into a result just because it crosses alpha but yeah we had a lot more to say about this than I thought we would. Or maybe I did. <laughs> yep. I've been kind oh, of we're, we're not wanting to talk about this I have, topic. I have a whole bunch yeah. more. We didn't even get to the responses to that paper. That's true. But, uh, yeah, other, well, a little bit, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe we should we should wrap this up. And uh, um, since, you know, we're all heading off to our various Thanksgivings. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, are we good? Have we, have we beaten the heck out of p-values? Yep. Yes. All right. Good. Well, (laughs) thanks everyone for for listening to The Black Goat. And uh, um, we will uh, look forward to talking to you next time.